Okay, this morning, um, I'm talking about something that really I feel is, is so much bigger than any of us are, bigger than me, certainly. Uh, it's very challenging. It's prophetic in the sense that it pushes us um, to think about how we act and how we treat others. Um, in some ways, it's, an, it's unnerving. And uh, so, Lord, help us um, as we talk about this. I want to talk about in, being inclusive instead of exclusive with people that you encounter. Even people that sort of throw you, people that you don't seem to understand, don't seem to get, people that you would rather sometimes fight with or maybe take flight from. And, um, and talk about this issue of what the power of moving toward other people, toward the other, what that really in, involves. And where this exclusionary kind of idea of running from people or fighting people, where that actually emerges in the human heart. When sin entered the human race, when it crawled its way, when that worm sort of wiggled its way into the human condition, the biblical narrative tells us that a fragmentation occurred that made people run from God and from each other. We began hiding, covering up. We began finger pointing. All of that emerged in the Genesis narrative. It turns out that sin fragmented us and began to alienate us. We pick up that in narratives like Genesis 3, right after the failure had happened, sin had entered. This is verse 7. It said, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. They realized they were vulnerable. There was some vulnerability there. And watch what they do with the vulnerability. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This idea of covering up anything that might somebody might fight us on, covering up anything that might be different, that we feel exposed by, starts when sin enters. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid. They hid from the Lord God from among the trees in the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said, where are you? And he answered, I heard you were in the garden and I was afraid. Notice that fear in relationship emerges with sin. We get scared. Because I was naked, so I hid. And God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Well, obviously, God knew that he had. But here he's given humankind an opportunity to own it, to fess up. But we didn't. And the man says, the woman, that woman that you put here, she, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Immediate displacement, immediate projection from self. Ownership. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the devil made me do it. Right? Again, throwing blame. Fragmentation. It starts to, to broaden as we watch the, the story unfold and we, we get to the apex of, of division that occurs in the story of Babel. The word Babel literally means just unrecognizable speech. Babel, Babel, you know, babbling. And... Uh, this is in Genesis 11, and what God had told them was to fill the earth, and to, you know, to, to go into the earth and fill it, to be multiply and to be part of a world family, be together, but yet spread. And they didn't want to do that. They wanted to sort of set up their own thing in rejection and in rebellion to God's sort of call and sort of plan for them. And we read the text in Genesis 11, verse 1. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. And that is, people moved eastward. They found this plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city whose tower reaches into the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves, not for God, and not be scattered over the whole face of the earth, which is what they were supposed to do. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that people were building. And the Lord said, if as one people, they're speaking the same language, they begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. It's a very interesting idea. I wish we had time to explicate, but we don't. So God says, come, let us go down and confuse their language so they won't understand each other. And the Lord scattered them there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That's why it's called Babel, because the, whole world, the Lord confused their language and uh, from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This was the result of rebellion, more fragmentation. Uh, sacred text has always asserted, it asserts that human beings were created to live in community. And we were created to not be fragmented tribes and nations and, and separated peoples. 
And at the heart of redemption, a lot of times we, we, we just think that redemption was about God being able to touch us all individually and forgive us of our sins. It certainly is that. But, but the greater kind of arc of that is to destroy what sin had brought and what sin had fostered. And one of the central issues of sin was people began to be fragmented from each other, to run from each other, to hide from each other, to point fingers at each other, right? And to cover up anything that's vulnerable about each other, about themselves. Well, redemption is God's commitment to reverse the trajectory of sin. In other words, it's a trajectory that breaks up the exclusion that had been a result, a thing that made us run from each other. And we see Jesus praying that exclusion would be defeated through his work. In John 17, he's praying to the Father, and he says, My Father, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That would be us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. See, the whole creation is based off the Trinity. It's based off this love and life that's shared, and then out of that sharing spills over into creation. It was this idea of opening up creation or opening up the life that was in God, spilling into the creation. That was God's dream. And there's always this idea of oneness, being together, different, but together. And then he says, that they may be all may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me, that this is real. Something in how we relate to each other preaches the gospel. It's more than just our words. It's how we relate. And then he says in verse 22, I have given them the glory you gave me. God gives us his glory. Why? So people can be healed. God gives us the glory. Why? So we can have this commanding kind of speech. God gave his glory so that we may be one. That we would actually move toward each other. That they may be one. That they may be one. That they Say that with me. That they may be one. As we are one. I and them, you and me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know you're really here, to let the world know that I matter, to let the world know that you love them even as you have loved me, that they may be one is the cry of Christ's heart. It's a reversal of the impulse of sin. Paul echoes the same thing when he wrote in Galatians 3 and 28. He said that because of what Jesus has done, there is neither Jew nor Greek the nations break down. There's neither slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Move toward each other. <laughs> the trajectory of the gospel has always been to bring people together. Jesus always loved folks, always loved including them, particularly those who were on the edges, on the hinterland of, of society, those that were, were pegged as sinners, that if you... We're seen with them. It would ding your, 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 your reputation. And he moved toward them and he didn't care. He would embrace the poor. People that would have, when you were with them, that didn't make you look better, didn't make you feel better about yourself. You, 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 he would connect with them or the people that were sick, the people that were labeled unclean. There were certain diseases that if you had them, that when you walked anywhere where there was anyone else, like down the street or something, you had to cry to warn them, unclean unclean and people would get out of your way and no one would touch you. We see Jesus doing this with, the, with those that were called sinners in Matthew 9 and verse 10. It says, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, he was a tax collector. There were other tax collectors. There were a bunch of them. And sinners came and ate with Jesus at the same table. Unheard of in the ancient world. You didn't do this. And, and uh, they, they ate with them and with the disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, Pharisees are classic. They only see what people do. They don't ever look at what, who people are or what's going on inside them. And the Pharisees said, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? This was not even in their conceptual universe. Why would you ever be around people who could dirty you? And on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. This is sick. But learn, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy. Mercy sees beyond what people think, sees beyond what people believe, sees beyond how people act, and sees the person and what's going on inside them. It listens to the heart. 
And he said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Sacrifice is what you do. It's what you bring. It's what you bring with your strength. It's what you're in control of. He said, I don't, I don't want you to be in control of everything. I don't want you to be in control of every relationship you have. I want you to have mercy. Messy, mercy is messy. Both have M's. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinners. And then we read in Matthew 8, he, he, he comes down from the mountainside. This is verse 1, and all these large crowds are with him, and this guy with leprosy comes. This, this man with rotting flesh comes and kneels before Jesus. He's taking a risk. He's going to where the crowd is. And instead of saying, get out of here, when the man says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus, this is unbelievable to those watching. Jesus doesn't just speak a healing word, which he had done in time to time. He just spoke to them. But Jesus instead reaches out his hands and he touches this guy. I mean, they didn't understand everything that was going on. I mean, for all you know, you touch a leper, one of the reasons they kept away from them is because you might catch it. Jesus touches and says, I am willing, honoring that leper. I've spoken with numbers of people who are, de- who are pretty ill. And one of the things they say is that the sicker they look, people tend to not touch them. I've talked to cancer patients that say when they let anybody know that they had cancer, people stopped touching them. I've talked to those that are aged, you know, the old elderly among us, when they get more frail, that people stop touching them. But here's Jesus with this guy who has leprosy and Jesus touches him, connects with him. The closest experience I've ever had in this vein was a story, many of you have heard me talk about it, it was an AIDS patient back in the early 80s. I was at a large church in St. Louis. I was speaking in St. Louis. And this was a time when very little was known about the HIV virus. And, and some people would, you know, you read articles and, and news reports are there saying they thought maybe it was airborne. Um, some people thought you could get it just by touching. If they sweat or something, you could get it through, through sweat. And, uh, it, 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 and at the time, it was, mostly, it was just in the gay population or with those that were intravenous drug users that began to emerge. And so these were people that, you know, were, were from a, you know, for most evangelicals, there, there were a lot of people that saw these folks as just being depraved and under God's judgment. And then you had the likes of Pat Robertson and others that were saying that the emergence of the HIV virus was the judgment of God on the gay community and on those that were intravenous drug users because they're living wrong and God had to judge them. And there was a, really a visceral reaction in most evangelical Christians against these folks. It was palpable. It was prominent in most communities that I would bump into. People were scared. So this guy comes up to me, and, and, I had, and he had heard me speak there several times, and he said, Ed, he said, um, would you pray for me? And I'm looking at him literally sick. I had my hand on his, on his arm. And I said, sure, what's wrong? And I kind of leaned in, and he said, I, I have AIDS. Now, in that moment, I mean, I'm, I'm just like most people. I mean, my immediate response to most situations is sort of a reaction with, you know, analysis, um, defensiveness a little bit, a little bit. I'm trying to control this, maybe sometimes judge the situation. I'm, I'm better at calculating than I am at loving. And by nature, I have, I have kind of a, an analytical mind, a critical mind, and, and a pretty demanding heart. And that's my first gaze at almost anything. My first kind of response is those kinds of thoughts. But over the years of really trying to understand Christian spirituality, what I've discovered is that if I listen to my heart in spite of what my head's doing, that a second gaze emerges. One that makes me open instead of defensive, undefended, immediately present in the situation. And, and I found that to be a very holy thing. But, but it doesn't come naturally. It, it uh, At least for me, it seems beyond natural to me. In fact, I would suggest that it's supernatural. 
The text comes to mind about Jesus when he said that people would believe in me, that they'd get messed with, that the people that would trust in Jesus, that something would happen in them that doesn't happen to people who don't trust him. And he makes this statement in John 7 and 38, whoever believes in me, this, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. That somehow as a result of being connected to the Christ, there's something going on in us, not necessarily in our heads per se, but in our hearts, in the essence of our being. That, and I think it's this stream of living water that if we can learn how to tap into it, it's a spiritual thing. If we can learn how to tap into it, which is the why of prayer, the why of, of coming to church, the why of community, that, that these things call us to a deeper place, the why of silence. We start connecting with this stream, and it's this stream that ushers us into a second gaze in any situation. Where we're not just responding from that first gaze, that analytical gaze. The second gaze is always jammed with compassion. And if you remember, every time Jesus did anything transformationally, where, where, where somebody was actually changed, any event that was transformational, compassion was present. There's a time that he said that he saw the people and, and they were without food and they were days out. And he, the Bible says he felt compassion for them and he said, we've got to feed them. There are times when he would talk to someone who was caught in sin, you know, and in life of sin, and there would be a sense of compassion that would come to him, and then he would address the situation in a way that was transformative. Or when he healed people, the Gospels always said that he was moved with compassion. We see an example of this in Matthew 20 and verse 34. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. He had compassion on them and he touched their eyes and immediately they received their sight and followed him. I think that river in us is a river of compassion. Times before he taught, one time it says that he looked up and he saw the masses like sheep without a shepherd and he had compassion on them and so he taught them the scriptures. Compassion forgets the big I. The compassion forgets the me in the context and how I feel and how you make me look and it just focuses on the other. Compassion is inclusive. It wants to embrace the other, even if that person is an outsider, even if that person in some way grieves us by how they think and how they carry themselves or how they look or how they believe or how they act. Even if the person's prodigal, you know, in evangelical circles, prodigal is not really a bad word. I mean, you know, the prodigal son is kind of a sweet story, but we forget that prodigal is a very pejorative description. It's very um, demeaning because the Prodigal is a waster. The prodigal is an abuser. Prodigality means wastefulness. The, he or she is a manipulator, an unfaithful person, a betrayer. The prodigal is the person that when you look at them, they make your head wag. You just catch yourself shaking your head. Why are you such a loser? That's the prodigal. But God has compassion on the prodigal. And in the prodigal story, as Jesus is telling it, he says in Luke 15, so when the prodigal got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son. He threw his arms around his son. He kisses his son. His son starts saying, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. And it's almost like the father doesn't even hear him. There's something in us that wants to say, well, now you, you understand what a toad you've been? I mean, I see you've come back, but are you owning your stuff? Do you realize what? You realize how, how you made me feel? How embarrassing it was when my friends saw you come and grab all your stuff and take off and you've just wasted it and you're over there eating pig stuff? Are you, are you full of the pig stuff? Are you ready for this, boy? See, some of us think that's ministry. And it's as if the father, as he's saying that, doesn't even pay attention to him. He just says, let's put some ring on your finger, shoes on your feet, let's go party down. It's the elder brother who's hacked. Some of us are elder brothers. The problem with compassion is that it looks awfully liberal. 
through that first gaze? Because inclusiveness looks like agreement. If you get around somebody that's acting in a certain way that you know is inappropriate and you lean into them and you love them, people think, well, he must agree with that person because they're not fighting them. They're not fleeing from them. They must be in agreement. But that's not true. In fact, we read the story of Luke 19. This is where Jesus is entering Jericho and he's passing through. And this guy there by the name of Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus was an absolute punk. He was a tax collector, which means he was ripping off people. He was, a, he was actually uh, abusing Israel and uh, fighting more for Rome, even though he was an, a Jew and considered a traitor. And so these, the people didn't like him. And so here's Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector. So he's running the show, man, and he was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but he's a short guy. He could not so he, because of the crowd. So he ran ahead, climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus, and Jesus was coming his way. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looks up and shocks the crowd, calls this guy by name. Zacchaeus, come down here. I got to go to your house. Now this was honoring Zacchaeus. I mean, if a famous person walked in here and, and you know, and sat down in our midst and they stopped and said, oh, hey, Joe, and you go, oh, Joe, Joe. It, added, it adds value to the person that he claims he knows. And so he came down at once and welcomed him. And all the people saw this and began to mutter. They began to complain. Listen, when you are inclusive of people that are questionable, people will think there's something wrong with you. And they said about Jesus, he is going to be the guest of a sinner. See, this is their first gaze reaction. First gaze is seldom compassionate. It's way too busy weighing out the situation about how I feel about it, what does it make me look like, rather than relating to the emotion and the situation the other person is in. Jesus did stuff like this and freaked people out. Do you remember the time when that harlot comes in and throws herself at the feet of Jesus crying? I mean, what would you do if there was a gal that was on this corner, a gal of the night, that was on the corner of him. We all knew she was here. We come to church. We all saw her, you know, you know, just always out there trying to work the deal. And then all of a sudden, one particular day, Pastor Brent is preaching. She comes rushing in, falls down at his feet, and starts weeping. Your first question would be, how does he know her? <laughs> one of the other questions would be, why is she crying? Didn't he pay her? When that, when that woman runs into that Pharisee's house and she's weeping at Jesus' feet and she's washing his feet with her tears and she's wiping off the dirt with her hair, there's a connection there. And Jesus looks up and they're all thinking, if he were a prophet, this would never be happening. He must not be. You don't touch people who are different. You don't, you exclude them. Religion always excludes people. And Jesus said, you see her? You know why she's doing this? You know why she's tending? You didn't wash my feet. Why she just sees the need and runs to it? It's because he who loves much has been forgiven much. Jesus embraced people no matter what they look like. And so in this story with Zacchaeus, after Zacchaeus gets honored like this, the crowd is freaking out. Watch what happens. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, 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 here, and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times that amount. He starts repenting. He starts being transformed. Not because Jesus fought him. Not because Jesus avoided him. But because Jesus included him. And Jesus said to him, today, dude, salvation has come to your house because this man too is a son of Abraham. He said, look, I don't care what people act like. On some level, they're worth something to God. They're creations of God and ones for whom Christ died. People are worth Jesus to God. What are they worth to us? The son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. Transformation occurs when we live out of the second gaze. 
When we live out of our first gaze, we get used to reacting to those who are different than us. And we, fight, we, we really react in two ways. Either we want to fight them, as I've said, or we want to take flight from them. Some of us just want to get all get up in people's grills that bother us, you know, or they're living in sin. We just want to say, don't you realize, don't you know that you're doing what's wrong? And let's get up in their faces thinking that's the gospel. Great example of this is in Mark chapter 2. This is on uh, verse 23. This is on the Sabbath day. It says, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they were being naughty. They were, it's a Sabbath. You're not supposed to harvest anything. You're supposed to leave things alone. It's the, it's the Sabbath. But here they are, you know, pulling off grain, I'm sure Jesus was going, you know, he wasn't doing it. it was just, and they're just hungry. They're hungry, you know, like kids. And I'm sure Jesus thought, I hope nobody's watching. But sure enough, somebody was. The typical evangelical. The Pharisees said to him, well, look, why are they, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? It's the Sabbath. They're doing what's not lawful. Just all up in their grill, man. This is problematic. <laughs> right? <laughs> they weren't going to compromise by not pointing out the offense. That'd be a compromise. See, some of you totally get this because even though you're maybe not, you could be great Pharisees. <laughs> right? You just have that anointment on you. <laughs> but Jesus answered these Pharisees. Have you never read, duh, what David, and David's one of your heroes, what he did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? Listen how Jesus looks past actions to the heart, to the why, what's going on inside them. And listens. In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and he ate the consecrated bread he wasn't supposed to, which is not lawful for the priest to eat. And he also gave to his companions. And then he makes this really amazing statement that's an inclusive statement. He says, he said to them, the Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. Rick, let me have you come up here quick. Yeah, come up here. I want you to help me do something. Okay, so... What he's saying is, this, let's pretend this is the Sabbath. What he's saying is the Sabbath was made for people who are weary. So here's Rick, who just never takes the Sabbath. He's all weary. Look weary. He's all weary, right? And what, what the gospel is, is Rick, don't not Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for you. Come on, Sabbath. See, that, that's the way that, this was made for him. But here's what the Pharisees do, and here's what a lot of us do. We look at him and say, he's not Sabbath. Oh. Yeah, not Sabbath. Don't you understand? You're supposed to Sabbath. What is wrong with you? Sabbath. Thank you. <laughs> and we beat people into the ground with truth. What is wrong with you? Not understanding. There is nothing gospel about that. In fact, Jesus said, when you act like this and you think you're helping the world, you make people twice the child of hell that you are yourself. Do you know how much Christian ministry is done like this? Maybe this is why we're not that effective. I don't usually get tempted to fight People struggling with obvious sins, you know, people, couples that are living together unmarried or someone that's struggling with an addiction. I, I, uh, I generally find myself wanting to fight people that judge other people. I, I just, I have a different place. I, you know, I don't look down on others. I look down on people who look down on people. <laughs> it's just a holier sin. It's... <laughs> and I've observed a curious thing inside myself that whenever I want to fight people, it's usually I want to react to them, the ones that offend me, in the same way that I respond to myself when I do things I hate. That's interesting. I, uh, if you're brutal in your inner reaction to your own littleness or sinfulness, 
If you're brutal, when you run into things that offend you and others, your reaction will probably be the same. Brutal. It's just a reflection of you. Or if we don't fight, we enter into flight. We run away from people that we don't like. We run away from people that we don't agree with. We run away from people who look in a certain way and act in a certain way that offends us. We just don't want to fight them, but we take flight from them. Example of that's in Luke 10 where Jesus is telling the story of the Good Samaritan and this guy he was talking to says he wanted to justify himself, verse 29. So he asked Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? Jesus said, a man was going down to Jerusalem from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hand of robbers and they stripped him of his clothes. They beat him. They went away, leaving him half dead. And a priest, a holy man, happened to be going down the same road. He saw this beaten man, bloodied, messy, a Samaritan. The Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. He's got the wrong address. And the scripture says he passed on the other side. He fled from him. And so to the Levite, another holy person supposedly, he comes to the place, he sees the guy in need, but he doesn't respond, he flees, he passes on the other side. See, some of us, this is what we do. We just want to get involved. And, and don't kid yourself, there are people that are all around us that have fallen into the hands of robbers and they have been stripped and they have been beaten and they have been abandoned and they've been left for half dead. But we don't want to touch the blood. And we don't want to pick up their soiled head or get close enough to them because it would take time that we've given to the Lord. So Jesus never applauds the fight, nor does he applaud the flight. He calls us to another way. And the other way is seen in the story of a woman caught in the very act of adultery. And in this little story, we see how we're supposed to react to the other, how we're supposed to react to those who grieve us, who throw us, who we want to run from. It says in John 8 and verse 1, Jesus comes to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people were gathered. He sat down to teach them, the teachers of the law, and the Pharisees brought in this woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand in front of everyone. Pharisees love this. We've got to make an example. We've got to make sure we point this out and talk hard about it to keep others from getting in it. And we need to name it, we need to blame, and we need to shame. That is the hope of purity in the future. We need to take a stand. And they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery and in the law of Moses. It commanded us to stone people like this. So what do you say? They were doing two things. They were trying to quench this woman's life but they were also trying to find a basis to accuse Jesus because he had a rep for being merciful. So maybe we'll catch him on not doing the word of God. Word of God, W-O-R-D-A-G-O-D, word of God. <laughs> but Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. He doesn't react. I'd like to suggest to you he was not going to react out of his first gaze. But he was looking for the second gaze. There's a text in Isaiah 11 that says, in talking about the Messiah, that he would not make a decision by what his ears heard or by what his eyes saw, but that he would delight in the fear of the Lord. Interesting phrase, delight in the fear of the Lord. If you have a study Bible, look it up. It'll say in the column, he or that smell God. It will say smell God. Delight in the fear of the Lord literally means in Hebrew, the literal translation is he would smell God. <laughs> How odd. But what the idea there is that just like a bloodhound or you know, certain animals can sniff and smell things humans can't smell, that Jesus wouldn't just react to what he saw like all of us tend to or react by what he heard like all of us tend to, that first gaze, but that he would in his heart begin to... What does God say? 
where are you? And maybe when he was riding on the ground, he simply was sniffing, waiting for the second case. It says that after he had done this, he's, he, they kept questioning him. He's not reacting. He finally straightens up and he says to them, this is so brilliant. If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying, listen, you want to throw stones at this sinner. You want to stop the life of this sinner. You want to correct and keep Israel holy by killing the sinner. But realize that those of you that are throwing stones are sinners. What is he saying? That other is really you. That other is really a mirror. Because my friend, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And on some level, Jesus is opening the door for us to be inclusive of everyone. That we're to always move towards the other, even the sinner, seeing him or her as a mirror of of us to include them into our lives and to realize this is part of incarnation. When Jesus comes into the world, he embraces humanity, not just the beautiful part, not just the nice ones among us. He embraced us, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And the scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to actually become sin. He so took on a solidarity with us, he became us. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, that we might be transformed. Transformation only happens when we have solidarity with the other. Not flight from them, not fight to them. He completely identifies with our sin so that we could identify with his rightness. We're the body of Christ. We're to continue his work. We need to identify with those who are lost, not judge them, not fight them, not take flight from them. We're called to wait for the second gaze and have compassion for people so that when you see a person, you don't recognize their sinfulness primarily where you want to name and blame and shame them. You're not supposed to be a Pharisee. You're not supposed to be an elder brother. They don't transform people. We need to see, we're not supposed to run from them either. Not just fight them, but not run from them and pretend they don't exist. And, 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 and that we have this safe kind of Pollyannish world that's unruffled by problems and just don't look over there. Don't look over there. We're to see ourselves in them. We're to realize that we're looking in a mirror and we are to love them and we're to try to understand them and to listen to them. And you'll be surprised. When you see a person who's an addict of anything, you're supposed to see yourself. Because truth be known, guys, all of us are addicts. Some of us are addicts for attention. Some of us are addicts of food, of spending, of busyness. We're all addicts. When you encounter a person of another political position that abhors you, see yourself. Realize that they, you abhor them. <laughs> and move toward them with understanding. You may not agree. You don't have to agree with them. You can celebrate a person you don't agree with. Listen, I listen to myself sometimes when I speak and I don't agree with me. <laughs> but move toward understanding. You no longer have to vilify people. We, I don't care who's on an enemy status in your heart. Stop it. That's the first gaze response. We don't have enemies. Christians give up enemies. And if somebody's on enemy status, we pray for them to we're enemies no longer. Why? Because they've changed, not necessarily, but because we understand. And that second gaze gives us compassion. This is the only hope for transformation. We have to be inclusive. We refuse the trajectory of sin that celebrates separateness and that defines a person by exclusivity. We don't find our identity in that I'm not like that guy. That's what the Pharisees did, remember? The Pharisee comes to prayer and he says, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like that sinner. But I tithe and I give this and I do that. And Jesus said, that is 
We don't define by exclusiveness. We choose to hear the Savior's cry that they may be one. The result? Transformation. Not every time. Not everyone that Jesus had compassion on was transformed. There was a lot of sinners that never listened to him. But that doesn't mean he didn't move toward them. And when he moved toward them, he saw them. Even to the point, the very people that were going to kill him a week later, Jesus is over Jerusalem looking at the people that are going to kill him, and he knows it. And he looks at them and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have longed to gather you under my wings as a hen does her chicks, but you were not willing. And it said, Jesus cried. He didn't say, you're going to get what you deserve. He didn't say, I'm out of here, Father. Those punks don't deserve anything. He didn't fight. He didn't take flight. He included them. This means that the gospel is not just a message. The gospel is about relationship. It's about how we relate to people. It's the gospel. We just want to tell them words. Orthodoxy. Right belief. You need to believe this. Well, I'll tell you what the word of God says on that. We just want to give people words. But it's not just about orthodoxy. It's about orthopraxy. Orthopraxy is the practice of life. It's how you work. It's how you live. It's how you see people. It's how you engage. It's not first gauge, gazing, it's second gazing. And as you interrelate with a person in an inclusive way, there's something about the very attitude that you have that is transformational. It's the gospel. This is St. Francis of Assisi with his famous dictum. Sometimes, always preach the gospel, sometimes use words. We say it a lot around here. Always preach the gospel, sometimes use words. He's thinking about this. This is the Franciscans were into orthopraxy. They were saying how we practice our lives, how we treat other people, how we engage in work. This is how we preach the gospel. Sometimes use words. But we, I mean, we in American evangelicalism particularly have thinking it's all just about words. And when we see someone that doesn't agree with the words, we fight them. Or we just avoid them. The 20th century scholastic philosopher Joseph Piper said it very well. He said, the proper habitat for truth is human relationship. This is why we're to move towards one another on this planet. So there I was, you know, with this guy with AIDS. And he asked me to pray for him. And I'm, 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 I'm touching his arm. I had leaned in. And when he said, I have AIDS, all of the milieu, the fear of the milieu, started kicking in. Part of me wanted to just back up. You know, there's a faint part of me like from three blocks away that said, are you sure he's ready for prayer? Has he repented? There's a small little part of my mind that was saying, you better confront him. He's obviously been in sin. That was far away. The closer thing was the part that wanted to flee. The part that wanted to just Back up just a little bit. Keep my hand in a safe place that's covered because he's got rotted flesh. He's the leper. And to pray a very sanitary prayer, very quick, and get out in case he breathes a little too close to me. That was across the street voice. Because as I began, the moment he said that, instead of reacting to my head with the first gaze, I stopped for a minute for the second gaze. And I, I felt this compassion, crazy compassion, no sense compassion, rise out of me. And my first impulse, I mean, even without thinking, my first impulse was to grab his neck and pull his cheek to mine. He's right here, cheek to cheek, you know, part of my head screaming, you know, he might be gay, he might think you are too. I'm serious, these crazy little thoughts that go on. But the compassion, the second gaze was already winning. 
And I said, God, you know, move in his life. And I prayed for him and I felt this amazing connection, this sense of value, this honoring like I was in the presence of Jesus. And, um, and after I prayed, I backed up. He's got tears in his eyes. But I thought, oh my gosh, the transformation was, I don't know what happened to him, but something happened to me. I felt like I was doing the gospel. I felt like this is the gospel. This is the gospel. Not our works alone. And I thought, you know, I never met him again. You know, I was in St. Louis and visiting. But I've pondered this over the years. And I've thought, what kind of place would the church be if we dared to move toward people? Where we, did, we wouldn't react inside when certain people were waiting on us at tables because we, they're obviously projecting a, a vibe that's inappropriate. Or when we're working with people where we find out about them and we push them back. And I, and I watch, you know, I watch on television. You all watch television shows. The other night I'm watching this television show and this lady is the star of the show is meeting this girl that they, that's on the workplace and she was saying, hey, would you like to get together with the rest of us girls? We're going to go to lunch and just have some time of talking. And the, the girl looked up and she's, you know, kind of this real kind of tight-lipped kind of, you know, anal person and said, well, is it a Christian group? She goes, well, not really. Well, I'm not, I only do Christian groups. I thought, oh my gosh, I mean, this is coming from people who don't understand. They're not insiders, but they peg us so well. We're filled with elder brothers and Pharisees or priests and Levites. No wonder the world doesn't listen to us. We became a people who leaned into others and celebrated them and loved them. We don't always agree with them, and we still believe in sin. There's no compromise, and if we get to talking, we're going to say, neither do we condemn you, but leave your life of sin. So, so it is, but, but if they come back the next day, we'll, say, you know, we'll still neither condemn them and say again, you know, it's going to be better if you don't do that. What if? I was at a pastor's convention, my last story, at a pastor's convention just this week. 200 pastors, you know, or 100 pastors were there. And uh, um, we were talking about the issue of gay marriage and about how the church needs to respond to that whole world. And a very conservative group of people. And we were talking about it, and I was trying to encourage them how to be inclusive without being compromising and what that looks like. And at the end of the talk, we had questions and answers. And one of the gals raised her hand, the pastor's wife raised her hand, and she said, well, I'll tell you this. I'm just so sick of Hollywood's agenda of trying to push the gay agenda down our throats and a couple of amens. And right after she said that, I said, listen, that's our problem. We want to fight people. I'm convinced that one of the reasons the agenda has been so heavy is because the church has been so unkind. We've created it. The world in which we live, the context in which we live, a lot of what you hate, we're responsible for because we have been mean. We have pushed people off. We have ignored them, and they are non-people. We need to repent. Hmm? The table will close. Stand. We're coming to the table at the end of this because if there's anything that screams inclusiveness, it's the table. As we go on and listen to the communion moments that we have in months to come, you'll hear as we share little snippets about how radical this table was in the ancient world. People didn't eat together. The most important people ate, and then they ate the most, and then they gave scraps to the others, and the women and the children were held separate, and it was just a complete positioning thing. The rich people sat in one place. The poor people sat somewhere else. And Jesus in this table basically says, everybody's welcome, same level. Woman, man. Red skin, black skin, yellow skin, white. Everybody. 
is welcome here. Rich person, slave, you're welcome here. Inclusiveness. As we come this morning, I'm asking you to let God, let God give you a commitment to the second gaze. Stop being a Pharisee. Stop being the elder brother. Stop fleeing from people and being the priest or the Levite where you just don't want to be involved and be a Christian. Engage, celebrate people. Repent this morning and let God begin to help you form this. The night that he was betrayed, the scripture said that he took the bread and after he had broke it, he declared, this is my body. Lord Jesus Christ, we bring this bread to you and we trust you by the power of the Holy Spirit to become one with this bread. For it to become for us the body of Christ, that your actual presence is here. That as we touch it, we're touching you, a piece of you that's more holy than the garment the woman touched that was healed from. Something greater than your garment is here. And so we say to you, welcome, Lord Jesus Christ. In the same way, after the supper, you took the cup and you said, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and the everlasting covenant, that we were to do this in remembrance of you. And so we ask you, Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit to enter the blood, let enter the cup so that it will become for us the blood of Christ. (laughs) And we we just simply say, welcome, Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome. And as we come, God, we pray that we will become a people who as we see your brokenness to bring us together and we see your shed blood to bring us into unity with yourself and each other, that we will be a Eucharistic people that will walk out of this place and say, God, it's okay. I can be broken for others. I can bleed a little. I can get messy as I lean over and I find the people that have been beaten and left for dead and abandoned and actually participate. Help us realize the gospel is more than words. This is the gospel. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray as he taught us to pray as we prepare our hearts. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Come and receive the body and blood of Christ.